Amen. You can be seated. Good morning and Merry Christmas. If you would, open with me quickly to Isaiah chapter 42. Isaiah chapter 42. I'll read verse 1. Hear the word of the Lord. Behold, my servant, whom I uphold, my chosen, in whom my soul delights. I have put my spirit upon him. He will bring forth justice to the nations. Let's pray. And so, Heavenly Father, we pray that today, for the next half hour or so, we could see the glory of Jesus Christ in the Incarnation. And that we could marvel at Him and worship Him. We ask it in Your holy name. Amen. Amen. This morning we'll we'll wrap up a five-week Advent series where we have been focusing on the biblical covenants with a specific focus on how all of the covenants work to bring forth this promised offspring that God promised to Eve in Genesis 3.15 that would bruise the head of the serpent. And we have, rather painstakingly, especially if you were here last night, argued that throughout the series. And we've argued that the same offspring that God promises to Eve is the same offspring that He promises to Abraham, through whom all the nations of the earth would be blessed, who is the same offspring that God promises to David, who would sit on His throne and reign forever. And so ultimately we see that this son of Adam, slash son of Abraham, slash son of David, has come into the world in the person of Jesus Christ. And so this morning on Christmas, rather than moving forward, in the historical timeline, we're going to go back, way, way back, uh, before time was even created, and talk about what theologians call the covenant of redemption. Now, some of you may be familiar with this term. Others of you may, you may have never heard of this term. And my hope this morning is not to get lofty and technical and abstract, but to be concise and simple and to show that this doctrine has much practical application for our lives And again, our hope is just that we could glory in the Lord Jesus Christ. And so I think the best way that we could do this is to unpack this covenant by asking three questions. What is the covenant of redemption? When was it made? And what was accomplished in it? So number one, what is the covenant of redemption? I'm going to give you the easiest and most simple definition I can give without, I think, betraying the reality of this. The covenant of redemption is the eternal agreement between God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit to redeem the elect. And in this agreement, God the Father commissions God the Son to come into the world as a human and act as a federal head of the church to redeem her. And we get the bulk of the biblical data for this eternal agreement in the Gospel of John and also in what we call the servant songs in Isaiah 40-61. to There are a series of passages here in Isaiah where you have Yahweh the Lord and the servant of Yahweh interacting with one another and speaking to one another about this plan of redemption. 
It's really quite striking when you think about it. And God the Son doesn't seek to accomplish this mission on His own. Rather, God the Father promises God the Son that His mission will be successful because He says, I will put My Spirit on you. We see this here in our passage. Verse, uh, chapter 42, verse 1. If you look at it here again, Yahweh says to His servant, I will uphold Him, My chosen, in whom My soul delights. I have put My Spirit upon Him. And so Yahweh is speaking to the servant. And these songs give us a glimpse into the commitment that Yahweh and the servant of Yahweh and the Spirit of Yahweh have made to redeem the church. And although these were prophesied 700 years before the birth of Christ, they communicate realities that are outside of time. And upon success of this mission, God the Father promises to exalt God the Son and to give Him blessing and to give Him uh, the, the glory for giving the earth the blessing that He promises to Abraham. This is what Paul talks about in Philippians chapter 2 in that famous passage where he says, "...and being found in human form, He humbled Himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross." So that's what Jesus does and what does the Father do because of that? It says, therefore God has highly exalted Him and bestowed on Him the name that is above every name. And we see in Jesus' high priestly prayer in John 17, in the same passage, we see God the Son has accomplished all that God the Father has given Him to accomplish, and that because of this, He receives glory and exaltation Not only that, but His people receive blessing as a result. Listen to John 17, 1-5. When Jesus had spoken these words, He lifted up His eyes to heaven and said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify Your Son that Your Son may glorify You since You have given Him authority over all flesh. And listen, to give eternal life to all whom You have given Him. And this is eternal life that they know You the only true God and Jesus Christ whom You have sent. I have glorified You on earth, having accomplished the work that You gave Me to do. And now, Father, glorify Me in Your presence with the glory that I had with You. When? Before the world existed. And so not only does God the Father commission the Son to come to the earth and redeem the elect, but the Son willfully and gladly accepts this mission. And so flip over really quickly to Isaiah 50, if you would. We're going to look at a few of these sermon uh, servant songs. Isaiah 50, we saw in Isaiah 42, Yahweh speaking to the servant. And now in Isaiah 50, the servant is speaking to Yahweh. And he says, Isaiah 50, Verse 4. The Lord God has given me the tongue of those who are taught, that I may know how to sustain with a word him who is weary. Morning by morning he awakens. He awakens my ear as those who are taught. The Lord God has opened my ear and I was not rebellious. I turned not backward. I gave my back to those who strike and my cheeks to those who pull out the beard. I hid not my face from disgrace. 
The servant knows his mission will be successful because Yahweh helps him. Look at verse 7. But the Lord God helps me. Verse 8. He who vindicates me is near. Who will contend with me? Let us stand up together. Who is my adversary? Let him come near to me. Behold, the Lord God helps me. Who will declare me guilty? Behold, all of them will wear out like a garment. The moth will eat them up. And so God the Father and God the Son work in full unison to redeem sinners. They love one another. They delight in one another. This isn't a situation where God the Son says begrudgingly to the Father, okay, Father, I know I'm the only way that these rotten sinners can be saved from Your wrath. Okay, I'll do it. That's not what's happening here. It's willful. It's loving. It's amazing. And a lot of people think, uh, this is really bad theology, a lot of people think that God the Father is sort of this angry, wrathful God. And God the Son is sort of the lover. Right? The hero. You, you, you've heard this. And, he, and so God the Father is angry with all of these sinners and He's ready to destroy them. And then God the Son steps up and says, no, no, no. I'll save them. Don't, don't crush them. I'll give Myself for them, Father. Don't do it. <clears throat> Yet in Isaiah 53.10, another servant song, it says this, Yet it was the will of Yahweh to crush him. He has put him to grief. <clears throat> when his soul makes an offering for guilt, he shall see his offspring. He shall prolong his days. And listen, the will of Yahweh shall prosper in His hand. There was never a moment when God's plan of redemption was in jeopardy. There was never a moment of doubt. God's redemption of His church is not like the Star Wars series. You've seen those movies where Anakin Skywalker, he's kind of the chosen one and then he ends up turning to the dark side. And then his son Luke kind of goes back and forth between the dark side and the good side and you think he's about to desert to go to the dark side and he ends up hanging strong and, and hanging in there. That's not how this happened. That's not how the God had accomplished redemption. God decreed the redemption of the elect and ensures that it happens. God the Father sends the Son. God the Son willfully goes. And God the Spirit rests upon Him and ensures that His mission will be accomplished. This is vitally important, brothers and sisters. God the Son accomplishes everything necessary to obtain eternal life for the elect as a man living by the power of the Holy Spirit. And on Christmas, it's very fitting to think about the virgin birth. How was Christ conceived? By the Holy Spirit. When Jesus was baptized, what happens to Him? The Holy Spirit descends upon Him. And John says He remains. And then flip over to Isaiah 61. Love hearing Bible pages turn. Isaiah 61, verses 1 and 2, The Spirit of the Lord God is upon me. Because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the poor, He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives and the opening of the prison to those who are bound, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor and the day of vengeance of our God to comfort all who mourn. 
And so if you have ever read uh, your New Testament, when you read that, you have red flags going off in your mind because you know that Jesus quotes that passage in Luke chapter 4. After Jesus is baptized and anointed with the Spirit and endures temptation in the wilderness, the Bible says that He goes into the synagogue in Nazareth on the Sabbath and it says that the scroll of Isaiah the prophet was given to Him. And Jesus unrolls the scroll and finds the passage where Yahweh speaks about the servant in Isaiah 61 and He reads it and He gives it back to the attendant and He goes and sits down And he says to them, today this Scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. In other words, he's saying, I'm Yahweh's servant. I'm anointed with the Spirit. I have the words of eternal life. And I'm going to set this people free from sin. I'm here. I'm here. And this is why the incarnation is so astonishing. That's why it's so amazing. Why do we celebrate Christmas Day? Is it merely just to celebrate Jesus' birth? We're celebrating the incarnation. That God's eternal decree of redemption broke through into human history as a man in the person of Jesus Christ. That the eternal counsel of God's will has been made manifest in time and space in the person of Jesus Christ. Brothers and sisters, it feels very vain trying to preach on this topic in a half hour. We are going to spend the rest of eternity learning and knowing about all that God the Son accomplished in His incarnation. And so my hope on this Christmas day is that we could just glory and marvel in Jesus Christ. Number two, when was the covenant of redemption made? I imagine if you surveyed a large number of people who were familiar with Christianity or even claimed to be a Christian and you asked them, you know, when did when do you think God decided to send Jesus into the world to save sinners? I I imagine a number of them might say something like this. Well, probably after Adam and Eve ate the fruit and he saw that they weren't going to get the job done, then he decided to send his own son. Or maybe someone would say, well, Once God gave humans a few thousand years and He saw that they weren't going to do it and they kept uh, sinning and killing one another and doing all sorts of evil, then He decided, you know what, I've got to just send my own son. They're not going to cut it. I'm going to send my own son to get the job done. You know, I think a lot of people see the Gospel as as sort of God's plan B. Plan A didn't work in the garden, so here's plan B. And I'm confident that all of us would push back against that notion. But I think we also have to push back against the argument that says that God foresaw into the future that Adam and Eve would fall and that sin would reign and that there would be disobedience. And so He already knew He would have to send His Son because He looked into the future and saw that Adam would fall. And so while that's certainly not as bad as the notion that God had to wait to see what Adam and Eve and the rest of humanity would do before he decided to send Christ. It's still reactionary. It's as if God's plan of redemption is reactionary to man's disobedience. And that makes sense logically. And it's certainly not as offensive as what I'm about to argue for. 
But the problem is that is not the way the Bible speaks of this. So when did God decree that He would save a people from their sins by sending Jesus Christ and empowering Him to accomplish their redemption? Answer, from eternity's past. Before the foundation of the world, before time and space were created, God decreed that Jesus Christ would save sinners. 1 Timothy 1 Eight to nine, Paul says this, share in the suffering for the gospel by the power of God, who saved us and called us to a holy calling, not because of works, but because of his own purpose and grace, which he gave us in Christ Jesus before the ages began. You could translate it before times eternal in ASB 95 from all eternity, New King James Version before time began. Paul again says to Titus that God gave eternal life and God who promised this eternal life, God who never lies, it says that He promised before the ages began and at the proper time manifested in His Word through the preaching with which I have been entrusted by the command of God our Savior. So when was God's salvation manifested in history? In the person of Christ and in the preaching of the apostles. But when... Was that promise made before the ages began? Before time began? Perhaps most popular, Ephesians 1, 3-5, Paul says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as He chose us in Him before the foundation of the world that we should be holy and blameless before Him. In love, He predestined us for adoption to Himself himself as sons through Jesus Christ according to the purpose of His will. And so it's not that God chose a people to save before the foundation of the world, but then determined later how He would accomplish that. But what does Paul say? In love, He predestined us for adoption to Himself as sons. How? Through Jesus Christ. That's always been the plan. Jesus Christ has always been God's plan of redemption of sinners. The covenant of redemption is God's eternal decree. And and so we shouldn't think of the covenant of redemption, guys, like, you know, 10 trillion years ago, there was no plan of redemption. And then nine trillion years ago, God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit sat down at a table and negotiated a plan and came up with an idea to save the elect. That is not how this happened. This plan of salvation has always been God's plan of salvation. It's a decree that happened outside of time because time is a created thing. The the redemption of sinners in Christ Jesus has always existed in the mind of God. Now, as you can imagine, this can get complex really quickly. And before too long, your head can start hurting. And so it's Christmas. I'm not going to press this point any further. But here's why this is so important for us to understand, brothers and sisters. You know, the Baptist, in Baptist circles, we, we get a criticism that we extremely individualize and personalize salvation. And it's a fair criticism. And it's one that is well taken. As if we take the Gospel from its communal context 
And what this over-individualization can do is it can produce an over-scrupulous conscience that is not based upon the Word of God, but is based upon legalism and laws that we create for ourselves. And what begins to happen is we begin to judge our salvation and judge our righteousness not by the plan of God or the Gospel of Jesus Christ, but by how we feel we are doing. And we begin to make our salvation about how well we do our devotions. And how well we say no to things that we know are not good. And guys, it's very possible that there are some people in this room who are slap wore out from assessing your salvation based upon your personal successes and failures. And if you could just step back and know that your salvation has been decreed from the foundation of the world. That, that your salvation has existed in the mind of God before time was created. And you could see that your salvation is ultimately not even about you. You get to share in it, praise the Lord, but it's ultimately about Jesus Christ the Son being exalted and made much of. There's great freedom in that, brothers and sisters. Great freedom. Lastly, point number three, and I'll move quickly. What was accomplished in the covenant of redemption? So for our remaining time today, I want to focus mainly on where this series began. And that was with the covenant of works with Adam as the federal head of all humanity. And if you remember back to that sermon, we spent most of our time in Romans 5, 12-21, where Paul argues that Adam's trespass because He was the federal head of all humanity, brought death and condemnation onto all humanity as a result. And so now, all humanity is born into Adam, dead in trespasses and sins, and deserves condemnation. However, Paul argues that in the same way, just as all have died in Adam because of his one trespass, in the same way Christ, as the second man or the last Adam, he comes as the federal head of the church so that all of his offspring are made righteousness or made righteous as a result of his obedience. So Romans 5:19 for as by one man's obedience the many were made sinners so by one man's excuse me for by one man's disobedience the many were made sinners so by one man's obedience the many were made righteous. So while again we could spend years and years answering the question of what God sent Christ to the earth to accomplish, at the heart of it were two things. To obey God's law perfectly as the federal head of the church, thus meriting eternal salvation for the elect. And number two, to pay the church's penalty for breaking the law, thus atoning for their sins. We see this in Isaiah 53, verse 11. It says this, by His knowledge shall the righteous one, My servant, listen, make many to be accounted righteous. And He shall bear their iniquities. So the servant will make many to be accounted righteous and He will bear their iniquities. Yahweh's servant does both for His people. So in short, we could say that the covenant of redemption is the basis of the new covenant. Or the covenant of grace. And so maybe some of you were caught off guard this morning because you thought we were moving into talking about the new covenant. And so just follow me here. The covenant of redemption 
is not the same thing as the covenant of grace, but it is the basis for it. It provides it. Just as Adam was under a covenant of works, wherein if he obeyed God's law perfectly, he would have obtained life and eternal blessing for himself and his offspring, Jesus Christ came into the world under a covenant of works. So that if he obeys God's law perfectly, he obtains eternal life and blessing for all his offspring. This is vitally important, brothers and sisters, for us to get. Jesus earned your eternal salvation. It was not given to him by grace. Jesus Christ did not earn and secure eternal life for the elect by grace. He earned and secured eternal life for the elect by works of righteousness so that the elect could inherit, not work for, but inherit eternal life and blessing not by works of righteousness, but by grace. It's amazing. God the Father promised God the Son in eternity past that He would send Him into the world and anoint Him with His Spirit to obey everything that needed to be obeyed and accomplish everything that needed to be accomplished and earn and secure eternal life for the elect so that the elect would not have to earn and secure it for themselves, but receive it by grace. Through faith. This is what the new covenant or the covenant of grace is. It's a covenant that has at its basis the work of Jesus Christ where we receive by grace what Jesus earned by works of righteousness. This is what God the Father sent God the Son as a man to do empowered by the Holy Spirit. This is why the incarnation is such a big deal. In the incarnation, God makes good on His promise to Eve, to Abraham, to David, yes. But ultimately, in the incarnation, God makes good on His promises to His own Son to give Him a people and to exalt Him as Lord and Messiah over all creation. In the incarnation, the Son in His active obedience fulfills God's law's requirements and in His passive obedience takes the law's penalty and suffers under God's wrath so that those whom the Father gave Him before the foundation of the world would not have to earn it and would not have to suffer under that wrath, but would receive the Son's inheritance by faith. Amen? And so as we come to the table on this Christmas day, strive, brothers and sisters, to keep your thoughts on God the Son and what He did for you and what He did for your brothers and sisters. Come to the table knowing that you are in the covenant of grace and that you joyfully inherit and received what Jesus Christ earned for you in His life. Amen. And so I know that we have a lot of visitors here. And so to come to the table, uh, we would ask that you be a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ and have confessed that and followed that up publicly uh, with baptism and that you would be that you are committed to a local church where you could rightly take the supper there. And if so, we would ask that you would come 
and, and join us at the table and fellowship the Lord, or fellowship with us there. And if not, if you're not going to take the supper, we have these red bulletins that I think were passed out that have some prayers in there that you can pray and make this a meaningful time. And so take a few moments and pray. And when you're ready, come get the elements and return to your seats. We'll take the supper together. And I'll pray for us and then you take some time to yourselves. Father in heaven, we do thank you for sending your son, Jesus Christ, into the earth to redeem sinners, to shed his blood, to obey the law perfectly. And so, Father, we thank you that we can receive this eternal life by faith in him. And so help us now to come to the table with joy and to rejoice in all that God is. We ask it all in his name. Amen.